This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. is up everybody my name is james d fiore and this is blackballed i am at the home studio for the first time in oh must be three months and so because of that i have I, by the way i came home i had a, i have a cat and my cat sitter um I, I was lucky enough to have a cat sitter didn't live here but came three four times a week Cats really know how to express their anger at you when you leave them for two months in the form of peeing wherever they want. Now, I have hardwood floors, so that's fine, but they find every pile of laundry. I've been doing laundry for the last week. It has been awful. So I wanted my first show to be a friend of the show, and I consider her a friend of the show. Um, and I can't wait to talk to her. She is a minister. She is an author. She is the former MPP for Parkdale High Park. And an all-around, I would say she's kind of like a political savant, in my view. I really wish she would get, get back into politics, too. But her name is Sherry DeNovo. Sherry, how are you? Yes, I'm good. I'm good, James. Long time. No see. This is exciting. It has been a long time. Um, I hope everything's going well with you. I... I um, things in this country are very strange right now. And I want to start with Ontario and um, ask you whether or not you think Doug Ford is experiencing not just hubris, but maybe well-founded hubris. He doesn't seem to be negatively impacted politically by um, the Greenbelt scandal. Um, he has recently announced that he um, he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, I think my ideological equals should be judging uh, criminal courts and only my ideological equals. So I'm going to put staffers on the committee that appoints judges. What's going on? What are we witnessing? And, and, and I always like to blame apathy, but what do you think we're witnessing right now in this province? Well, first of all, I mean, look at the scandals. I mean, not only Greenbelt, but I mean, putting a mega spa and giving them all our money to do it, moving, I mean, I, you know, Highway 413. I mean, there's one after the other after the other, and now moving government offices to Staples and Walmart. I mean, this is over the top. And uh, this is just giving, I mean, this is, you know, I'll, I'll be careful with my words here, but um, I mean, uh -huh. this is something the RCMP should look into, because come on, like, this is yeah. the episode of the sopranos really only housed at queen's park so um so why isn't this affecting his polling numbers is the question um uh, and, and by the way the uh the least of it i think is him admitting being honest saying i'm going to put staffers in that are going to do my bidding onto committee that chooses judges 
how quite frankly, um, every civil service, you know, appointment of any high level done by majority government is going to have, is, is going to be partisan. I remember sitting on a committee when I was there that was one of those committees to choose civil servants. But of course, we were in the minority because we were in the majority government. So, you know, mm. number of people around. And one of the conservative members said to the, the candidate, have you now or ever been a member of the Liberal Party? And we all started laughing because <laughs> joke yeah. that of course they have. Otherwise, yeah. they wouldn't be sitting there, right? Yeah. So, I mean, everybody does this. It's, a, it's kind of a known thing. Now, what, what, so hold on. Was that a McCarthy era joke? <laughs> Is that what that was? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was like a Kathleen Wynne era joke. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just saying every party with power will skew you know, appointments to people in their party. It's, it's what people do. Look at the Senate. The Senate is a perfect example of how that works. So uh, even if they're called independent, they're not really, right? So, yeah. um, so he was being honest, stupidly, of course, but honest. Uh, I just wish he'd be honest about all the other, you know, uh, you know, deals that he makes with his friends and saying, of course, I'm going to deal with my friends. Who else would I deal with, you know? Yeah. Um, so so that's where it's at. One hopes that judges, because they take an oath, even if they vote conservative, actually judge cases on the merits of the case. That's the hope, um, mm-hmm. because they all vote one way or the other. So they're, nobody's unbiased, right? Um, so, yeah, that's the least of his problems. Um, why polling? To, to get back to the question. So why polling is, is, I think this is kind of halo effect of the even worse uh, Polyev influence. Um, on the polls. First of all, the Conservative Party has, you know, more provinces, more money, more power than any other party in the country right now. So they've got the strategists, they've got really high paid, really efficient strategists uh, that pays for ads, pays for lots of stuff. Um, and Polyev um, has some pretty brilliant, um, I'm, I'm saying this because I'm Italian, so I can be a bit Machiavellian, um, <laughs> That's some brilliant strategists working for him, right? And they don't come cheap. So, so I think it's it's kind of a, I, I don't know what the opposite of halo effect is, <laughs> whatever the, the opposite pitch, is. the pitchfork effect, yeah. pitchfork maybe, yeah. yeah, effect in Ontario from from the federal reality. Um, but we and that's we different. Like- that's different than how it used to be, right? Like it used to be like if you go back to the seventies and eighties and maybe even the nineties. If there was a conservative premier in Ontario, the country often went uh, liberal and vice versa. I think there's a new group of political activists right now on the right that, first of all, they're probably not familiar that that was kind of the trend. And they're probably thinking that maybe we can pull our resources and just keep voting these people in and we'll have a trifecta if they can get, you know, a, a, a conservative mayor next time in Toronto or something. Like they just feel, it feels like, um, it's interesting because when I was young, I was always thinking like, oh, if, there, if more people become politically active, then, you know, we'll be sensibly progressive, this country. And it turns out if only a small fraction of people become politically active, you can just tilt everything to the right. Yeah. And, and not only that, but it, what's really scary is the rise in conservative voters among the young. Because it used to always be old, conservative, you know, middle-aged, liberal, young, NDP or something. That's no longer the case. And that's really kind of terrified. Part of the blame lies with mainstream media, by the way. So I'm glad you're not part of the mainstream, James. Oh, um, they won't have me, the, Sherry. They won't have yeah, me. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. Hallelujah. So yeah. I just came back. I, I was with some uh, relatives down in Southern California and, and usually I hate American uh, uh, media of any sort. But um, but down there was really interesting. MSNBC is just 24-7 anti-Trump. 
like 24 seven smashing and da- you know, Trump. Yeah. And then you got Fox that pro Trump, right? Up here, you come up here, you got National Post, you got, you know, the Sun, you got right wing media, and not to mention the Prouds, you know, you got yeah. all of that happening. Um, and then you've got CBC and the star trying to be neutral. Like, where does that get us? I mean, CBC is going to be out of work. When Polly gets to, I mean, they should be fighting with everything they have, tooth and nail, against this guy, and they're not. They're pretending to be, you know, nice Canadians. Well, we're in the middle somewhere. Uh, so, you know, it was very disconcerting coming back. I have to say, for the first time ever. Yeah, I often say that there's um, the new conventional conventional wisdom in politics is that there is no conventional wisdom in politics anymore. Um, now, that's a broad statement, but what I mean by that, and I'll give you an example, um, since you mentioned Polyev. It used to be, it was like this with uh, Aaron O'Toole. It was like this with Andrew Scheer, where when they run for leadership, they really court heavily the far right. And then when it comes to the general election, they sort of linger back to the center, or at least they're not as demonstrative with their support about um, far right issues. I feel like those days are done. I feel like Polyev is never going to inch back to the center during an election. I think he feels like he's tapped into a mega North kind of pulse in this country and that he's going to be the first conservative in my memory that is going to run a campaign that is decidedly far right. How do you think that's going to play? Yeah, out? absolutely. I agree. Um, he's a Trumpling. That's who he is. Um, and that's who we'll get if you elect him um, out there. So, I mean, that's exactly who he is. And um, and what's terrifying um, about that is the rise of the right is not just in Canada. Of course, we see it in North America. I mean, Trump, last time I checked the polling down there, was leading in every in most of the swing states anyway. Um, it's, it's in Europe, you know, in the Netherlands. You know, who would have thought that? In New Zealand, who would have thought that? In Argentina. Like, it's, so it's spreading around the world. This is a global movement to keep billionaires as billionaires. And one of them is going to be a trillionaire soon. So we know there's huge money behind this. Um, I mean, I used to say that fascism is the last gasp of capitalism. So maybe that's what we're seeing here again. Uh, Everything old is new again. But I mean, that is certainly um, what's what's happening globally, not just here. And so you've got, you know, you've got Russian bots on board, you know, like all these guys stick together. They go to the same spas, you know. Yeah, it was interesting listening to um, John Stewart last uh, last week talk about uh, Tucker Carlson in Russia. And Tucker Carlson's like, look how amazing these subways are. Look how cheap groceries are. And they're like, yeah, but people only make a couple hundred bucks a week in Russia. Um, but, but he made one good point. And this speaks to me. This speaks more to um, not that one side is right and one side is wrong, but how polarized we are. Because Stewart framed it as like Putin is so unwoke that the far right in North America have deemed him as being a great leader of sorts because he's unwoke. And I can't, uh, you know, I, I, first of all, that's obviously absurd um, to, to actually, first of all, put any faith in a dictator like, like Vladimir Putin. But then I start to think, and I always do this to myself because I want to know how much responsibility does each side sort of have towards an issue. And sometimes I feel like, we don't do enough talking about the issues in depth in order for the public to sort of make a an educated um, opinion or a comment or whatever. So when I look at all the money that, that Justin Trudeau is spending on uh, military aid to Ukraine, I don't know why we just have to accept that number as being something that 
the good guys need to accept. Why isn't there more of an effort for uh, to explain to Canadians what how they came up with the figure of like I think it's three billion or something like that, and and how you know how it's going to help our national security, what it means uh, as far as the people of Ukraine goes. Like, are we able to be pro-Ukraine without saying, well, maybe it can be one and a half billion? Like, are we, are we allowed to have that opinion anymore or are those days gone? Well, the problem with that war, of course, is it's a proxy war and it always threatens, as all proxy wars do, to become a more general war. And, um, and so that's terrifying. Um, and, and the other thing is that it's a war that in terms of the NATO powers has to be won. But what if it can't be won? So, so that, you know, where is the urge to maybe talk? Um, there were talks that they, you know, before all this got going. Um, I mean, Russia's concern is, of course, they become part of NATO, that they're not, that they're aligned and not with them. Um, and there's always been this history between Russia and Ukraine anyway. Um, and, you know, this is a, this is like, it's an invasion, right? It's an invasion, but it's an invasion by a really powerful country. Maybe not as powerful as they seem. I think the, wear, the war is wearing on them too. Um, but I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a quagmire, right? And so, yeah, I mean, to your, your point, um, this uh, I, I, environmentally, it's a disaster. The more money we put into military, the, the hasten, we hasten our all of our demise um, in terms of yeah. the environment. You know, so yeah, it's a tough one. I, I've talked to Noam Chomsky about this issue. I've talked to Dave Troy. He's an investigative journalist about this issue. Everyone sees it as a proxy war. They don't like to say that in the media for some reason. Um, and it's a NATO war in everything except name. <laughs> like, you know, it's it, so it becomes this. I, I don't think enough people really understand it. I, and I, I certainly don't understand the nuances of why geopolitically it's important for us. We're basically matching our, U, our our NATO contributions to just Ukraine without calling it a NATO war. And, and I just think it's pulling a fast one on the public. Well, and also in the very early days, and perhaps Noam said this, but um, uh, certainly I will. Um, in the very early days before uh, anything started, before the invasion, um, there were talks between Russia and Ukraine at that point. Um, even discussion about Crimea, even after the invasion there, um, and and one and and Russia's bottom line is we don't want you to be part of NATO. Um, and then it was the Americans and the British actually who spoke up and said, "Don't talk to them at all. Like, forget forget our support for you in anything if you do that." Yeah. So I mean, of course, it's a proxy war. I mean, it's very much that way. And um, you know, and this is terrifying. I mean, it should terrify all of us. Uh, so yeah, um, I think that the money should be linked to ending the war. If it helps end the war, that's what we should all be looking at. And I'm sure they are too. This war got to end and it can't yeah. end with more war. Right? Uh, and it's one of two wars happening uh, yes. right now on the planet that, um, that people are, are keeping a close eye on. And the other one of course is, uh, Israel versus, I would say, Instead of the Palestinians, I would say versus Hamas. It just makes more sense to me to say that. Like, um, but unfortunately, the people that bear the brunt of Hamas and Israel going to war are the Palestinian people. At first, there was a too soon kind of vibe in the media about holding Netanyahu to task for being so heavy-handed. But thirty thousand dead civilians later, and half of I the don't, women and children, 
and and, and half the population there are women and children. children yeah. a day, hundred children a day was the last figure I saw. It's horrific. Um, how, now, how, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to I, I open with this. Yeah. Despite how anyone feels about this war, despite what side you might be on, if you happen to be on a side, I always like to say that when it comes to Israel and Hamas, I'm more of a spectator. Because A, I'm not educated enough to talk the history in detail. I only know what I see and what I hear. Um, but really, at the end of the day, when I think about um, all of the civilians dying, I think of Netanyahu's politics more than I think of Israeli people. And I think that it's always important to separate the government from the people that that government leads. Would we be seeing a different war if uh, someone like uh, from cut from the same political cloth as like a Rabin or someone like that would what, what would a more liberal uh, Israeli prime minister have done do you think and I know it's a hard question to answer it's a hypothetical but uh, what do you think a more liberal Israeli prime minister would have done in the uh, as a reaction to the October 7th terrorist attack well, I mean, first and foremost, uh, we have to remember the situation before any of this happened, before October 7th, and that was that tens of thousands of Israelis were in the streets trying to bring down the Netanyahu government. I mean, mm -hmm. he is not, he was not popular at all. Um, now, the massacre, and to me, you can keep two ideas in your head at the same time, which seems so difficult these days. Yeah. But anyway, one idea is the Hamas massacre was a massacre. It was horrendous. I've heard from the victims. I mean, this was awful. Um, no justification. Number two, there should have been a ceasefire, like, right from the get-go, almost, in Gaza. Like, this is no, this is not a war. This is, you know, one side has drones and planes and an air force, and the other side got not much, right? Yeah. Um, and and Hamas really was an occupier in Gaza in a sense. I mean, they haven't had a, an election for a long time. And even that election was kind of screwed. Right. Mm. So, I mean, you know, I've seen a lot of Palestinians talking uh, on social media that have you know come from Gaza who are not supporters of Hamas at all. But they're paying the price for this. And Israel knows that, you know. They know that. They know they're killing 100 kids a day. They know they're, you know, destroying hospitals. They won't let aid in. I mean, there's no justification for for the way that this war is being waged upon Gaza. There's none. And and I think it's time for a ceasefire. Um, and sadly, um, sadly, that seems very difficult for people. I mean, 70 percent of Canadians support a ceasefire, yet our governments do not. Right. So. Um, there it is. Uh, there, and we, there was a big trend of, of like maybe yeah. three weeks ago or a month ago where even if you suggested a ceasefire, people were like saying, oh, you're anti-Semitic. And it's like and I know we're not supposed to we're supposed to filter out that kind of toxicity online. But in the, uh, like, at the, especially in October, November, it was mainstream to 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 really label someone as something like that when you were just looking for peace. Like, yeah. the, you know, and, and, and I guess my question then to you would be. Because Netanyahu chose this route, how many more Hamas fighters is he creating in the process with 15,000 children dead? Every child that's being born. I mean, I, like what he's done is he's fueled that particular fire for another generation at least. Um, it did not need to be this way. Uh, and, you know, this, this clearly, um, I mean... If, you know, clearly a ceasefire needed to happen much before this. And and one of the central arguments, I, I think, for anybody who, you know, complains about that, that approach is that if the point was to save the hostages, 
This is the way to go about it. This is the way to make sure they're all killed by the time you even find them. So the families of the hostages are calling for like those. That's the reason they were supposed to be in there in the first place is to rescue the hostages. Well, that hasn't happened. We know that some have died and more will die and probably very few will be rescued because of this. Um, So, I mean, and, and there's still a call for Netanyahu to step down. It's even louder now. So, I mean, this is not. Um, and, and in terms of the resistance to it, um, absolutely, you know, I have no problem people demonstrating outside the Israeli consulate or outside, you know, MPPs or MPs offices or whatever they need to do. Um, you know, demonstrating in a Jewish neighborhood against Jews or against a Jewish school, that's anti-Semitic, right? Yeah. I mean, and we can keep two thoughts in our heads at the same time, right? Yeah. We can, we can do that. And, um, and it seems so difficult to do, but it's, I think, actually the human thing to do. Yeah, you're a good guest to have on to talk about. I'm glad you mentioned that, the, the, the provocative protests that are happening. That is a, it's like the only way to protest nowadays, it seems, to be somewhat provocative or d- disruptive or something. And I think, I think that those types of protests have sort of um, are long past their expiry dates. I was watching, um, I was actually watching uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X like a week and a half ago or something like that. I like two Spike Lee movies. The rest of them I don't really care for, but Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X I really like a lot. But Malcolm X, the brilliant thing about, and I, and I actually talked to a couple people. I talked to Seymour Hirsch about this, of all people, because um, he was around back then. And the powerful symbol of like having protesters line up in formation, stand still and remain quiet is so much more powerful than blocking traffic or bringing trucks to Capitol Hill or provocatively going into Jewish neighborhoods and being, I, I, you know, I'm not an expert at protesting, but I know I've never been swayed by the let's make everyone else's life awful for a few hours in order to get our point across. Do you think that we have lost our ability to do protesting in an effective manner? I don't know. I mean, you're speaking to a woman who um, for a while there, this is pre COVID, um, you know, every was it every Wednesday? I think it was every Wednesday. Um, we shut down Young and Dundas for 15 minutes only. For 15 oh, minutes. Only. So you're thoughtful about it then. <laughs> and we had we had dancers, we had speakers. It was you know for climate action, um, yeah. but it was only 15 minutes. Cops didn't even give us a hard time. Like, um, and it was you know the drivers honked their horns or whatever, and then went on. But um, but yeah, I mean, I I think you know organizing is the only way to organizing masses of people is really the only way to resist uh, political action by the governments. But also there's another way, and that is turn up to vote, you know, Um, uh, and also lobby politicians. I mean, you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be a huge corporation to be a lobbyist. One of the most effective lobbyists that's ever crossed my path was a a trans woman on ODSP who just didn't say no and just made sure she visited everybody at Queens Park all the time. So, Hmm. I mean, you, anybody can be a lobbyist, anybody can um, go out and vote and organize to get somebody elected um, or get them unelected. Um, and anybody can be part of a peaceful de- demonstration. Um, it, this is, this is, you know, our right. And, and it's, it is effective. Um, I was part of, a, in 1971, I was the only woman to sign on to the We Demand, which was the first gay demonstration back then on Parliament Hill. Mm -hmm. And we were just a a small group of utopian hippies. 
and we had this huge list of demands, things like not being fired, things were, like you know, having access to kids. Were, were you called the Utopian Hippies? Well, I, we were because the, the acronym doesn't do you any favors, right? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the yeah. reality is we, you know, like we didn't expect any of this stuff to ever happen. We didn't. We really didn't. And there weren't very many of us. And everything. And we won everything. We right. want every single thing. Now, so all I'm saying is that it always starts with a handful of people, um, but it also ends up in laws changing. So um, so don't stop, but be smart about it, is what I would say. Uh, I have noticed um, in the last, uh, I don't know, six months or something, I don't think I'm becoming more conservative. <laughs> I don't. But there are a few issues that have really caused other people to call me a right winger. And I, and I was just a little surprised. So I'm a father of two, nine and seven. Um, my kid has a, as a, as a cell phone, but I've taken the internet off of it. So it's just because I'm separated from his mom. So we can get a hold of each other without having to go through mom. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji media is our new podcast for kids flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. And Paulie have uh, offered up something last week. And he got shat on for it. Um, I, I'm I'm not the one that I'm not one person that shat on for it. In fact, the the small praise that I gave him was that I have not actually heard a politician even bring up this subject, and I think it's really important. Which is the horrifically easy access to adult content that any kid with a cell phone has these days. Now, I don't care if he's motivated by placating to the far right. That doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is, is that once I put the blockers on my kids' devices and they go to school, other kids don't have blockers on their devices. And I'm wondering, I don't think I'm a prude. In fact, I fucking know I'm not a prude. But I, I am very much worried about the 10-year-old James who, who saw pornography for the first time because one of his friend's brothers showed him a VHS tape. And I was just completely traumatized. I, and it was, I won't obviously go into detail what it was, but I was far too young to, to see what I was seeing. And then I started to imagine what it would be like if I had some de magical device that would give me that whenever I wanted. And I just don't even know what would have happened to James in that case. Is there anything that can sort of be done besides being good parents when it comes to the Internet's seemingly unabashed 
idea of pornography for everybody? Well, I mean, I think the government is trying to do something um, where children are concerned, right? Like I just heard about it, but there's no details. So who knows what it actually looks like in reality, um, you know, the Trudeau government. <clears throat> um, but is that I mean, the online harms bill? Yeah, yeah. The only um, mention of pornography in that is pornography where, that feature children, not children digesting it. I, I know. I mean, here's the problem. In a kind of horrible way, the horse is out of the barn. Um, uh, I mean, and with like, yeah, I mean, I, I think at ultimately you put the blockers on, you do what you can. I mean, what I used to do with my kids is because, you know, the same thing, it, it, you know, it was far less dramatic back then. I mean, they're yeah. adults. Um, but I mean, it, it, but I mean, what I would do is, you know, if they wanted to watch, in my case, it was all like, I was like so anti-violence. There wasn't so much access to pornography as there was mm -hmm. just everybody's killing everybody. It was getting, you know, video games really bloody, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would, yeah, but if I said no, they'd go to their friend's house and play it there, you know. So yeah. at, just like you say, if you block here, they go to class. So what I would do is if they insisted that they wanted, I wouldn't buy them, but if they got them and they wanted to watch them, I would sit there and be that really, you know, horrible parent that sits and says, do you really think this, this is okay? Or, you know, don't you think there's a better way of resolving that conflict? You know, and yeah. make it so horrible to yeah. watch the movie or to do the thing. But they, they, they keep on associating pornography with their mom. Oh, my God. It's pretty effective, you know, to just, yeah. like, put the kibosh on everything that your mom's going to be there, you know. So yeah. all, all I'm saying is that I think, you know, if we're trying to prevent them seeing anything, like – yeah, it's it is traumatic, and it, and I I fear it's a losing battle. Um, and the best we can do is keep the really horrendous stuff, hopefully, out of reach. Which I hope. Yeah. But again, you know, like like I joked the other day about how when I was a kid, um, discovering your dad's Playboy centerfold was the thing that gave you the adrenaline spike. And today, there's like gangbangs on demand. You know, no, and it is a totally different landscape. It is not even close to being the same, right? I mean, this is where I think, yeah. I mean, to me, education is the answer to a lot of our issues, like yeah. education. Like people objected to sex ed ed education, and then their kid goes and watches gangbangs on demand, right? I think what you need is really good sex ed education that's inclusive, that's fair, and you need to start it early enough that you're counteracting what they're seeing. That's not you know, um, not joyous sexuality, but like something else entirely, right? Because um, yeah. you're not going to stop it. It's everywhere, right? You're not going to stop it. So that's the sad yeah. reality. And the other issue is then Danielle Smith. And um, I'm just going to put all my cards on the table. I, I the, the, and, and I think this speaks to how, again, how issues aren't properly laid out for people to really understand what's going on. I have a great relationship with my kids. Now, they're nine and seven. I'm hopeful that I get to maintain op an open sort of line of communication with them. Um, and if we do, I don't want my teacher shielding me from anything. So I, I'm wondering if the idea of what the spirit of her bill seems anti-trans to me, right? It is. Absolutely. Yes. But the, um, the we don't always follow the spirit of legislation and policy. Um, and sometimes... It, things get lost in the swamp. So like if my child who I have a great relationship with and they're 13 or 14, tell their teacher that they had sex and then the teacher doesn't tell me, 
I'm going to be pissed off at that teacher. And and I know the teacher wants to protect the child from a potential harmful situation at home. But is there going to be some sort of negative ancillary and unintended impacts for good parents for a bill like that? No. First of all, sorry, what, sorry, sorry for, yeah, for what yeah. she's changing. So the policy that okay. she's changing. What, uh, what she's talking about is a parent, uh, teachers outing trans children and non-binary children to their parents. That's right. Using their pronouns. She's not talking about sex. I use the example. I said, what if your teacher, when you started having sex as a teenager, told your parents about you having sex? What would you feel about that? And you're a heterosexual cisgendered, right? I mean, first of all, this is not... Allegedly. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. So, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, first of all, if that child, if you have a great relationship with your child and they are exploring their gender or their sexuality or anything else, they're going to, certainly with, with pronouns, we're talking about pronouns. If they want to be called they, them, or he, him, or she, her, and that doesn't fit their biology or whatever, I mean, they're going to be telling their parents. I know lots of lots and lots of families in this situation where they have trans children or non-binary children that are exploring their, their gender. And they talk to their parents and their parents listen and they're cool. And if they don't, they're not cool and they don't understand it, they get some advice and they, you know, go see a, you know, doctor or therapist or something. Right. So, mm. so they deal with it, but it's the kids whose parents, you know, what this is going to do is put children at risk, their very lives at risk. That's what it's going to do, because children aren't telling their parents something for which they're going to be blamed or punished or hit or abused or, you know, sent off to, you know, conversion therapy by some religious quack. So, I mean, this this is what's going to happen. Um, and I and I have full confidence because I talk to teachers all the time that they will not do this. So you know, these re these ridiculous premiers can override human rights, which is what they're doing, overriding yeah. human rights of the land um, for all they want. But teachers are not going to betray the confidence of their students, and they shouldn't. You know teachers, and I know a bunch of teachers. I haven't asked them, but maybe you've talked to them. Isn't there a, a, a sort of, you know, facet of good teachers that already sort of practice uh, being confidential with their students when it comes to certain things? Absolutely. Doesn't that already exist? Of course it does. Yeah. Most yeah. most teachers do. And if it's a question of abuse, there are laws in place. They have to report abuse, and they do to the authorities, yeah. right? Whether it's happening at home or somewhere else, right? So that's different. But where it's just to do with the kids' sexuality or their gender questions, this is private stuff. You don't want your teacher, if you confide in them, you don't want anybody, if you confide in them, to tell somebody else. And children's children have rights, and this is overriding them. Yeah, you know, we're both Italian. I think I'm half Italian. I don't know about you, but I'm half me, Italian. Me too, half Italian. Yeah, I'm half Dutch, half Italian. So I am literally my own worst enemy. But um, the uh, <laughs> the idea of um, I, I when I often joke that when my daughter was born, I went from fifty percent Italian to four hundred and seventy six percent Italian, right? And I, and I'm not an overbearing dad like that, and I don't ever want to be, but I want to be allies with my teacher, and I want my kids to feel comfortable enough to talk to me about certain things. And I think this issue, because I'm not just talking about the Daniel Smith side, I'm just talking about how we, t we hear about this in BC and Ontario, um, or we used to in Ontario, about uh, how there's going to be legislation to protect, um, uh, you know, LGBT communities uh, while at school and everything. And all I kept on thinking was, Am I going to be left out of the loop as a dad? Like, I just want to be able to to remain in the loop. And and I think and the reason why I'm saying that is because I think there's a lot of very well-meaning parents out there 
who might not have a very good grasp of what it even means to be a transgender person, but that, that just wants to make sure that no one interferes with their parenting of their child. And I don't feel that this issue has been explained well enough to them. And I think that that, that people that are sort of uh, criticizing Daniel Smith, I think those critics would have more allies if if they just were found a way to explain to parents, we're not trying to take away parenting from good parents because that's what my initial reaction was. I'm like, how dare you? You know, and then now I've become more evolved on this issue. The eager beaver podcast guys, um, have good shows where they talk about it and, and I learn a lot and I want to keep learning. And I'm just wondering, I think there's other parents like me out there that just don't realize it, but they, they will evolve on this issue if it's explained better. Absolutely. And, and so that's what I, I try to do when I speak to teachers organizations, which I do a lot. And, um, uh, and, and it even comes down to scripture and sometimes, which is hilarious, but true. I mean, teachers need, te teachers need to know, have armor. And, and I think parents do too. Parents need information and they need to educate themselves. Um, but I mean, there's lots of, I mean, I didn't talk to my parents about who I was having sex with. Um, I don't think if I talked to my teacher and they were a friend, I don't, I wouldn't want my teacher to talk to my parents about who I'm having sex with or thinking about having sex with. And, and honestly, that's just, that's called being a good friend. And my, my kids, I mean, think about it. You could be the best parent in the world and your kid's not going to necessarily talk to you about those things. And, you know, you don't want to force that because guess what will happen is if the teacher tells you and the kid didn't want them to. That's going to really harm your relationship. And that child will never, ever, they won't have somebody to confide in. You're taking away their person to confide in, in that situation. Just like they may confide in you about stuff and not tell your friends or not tell their teacher about things. I mean, we've mm -hmm. got to, you know, we respect our, ch our children's right to privacy. It should be their call, not a teacher's or a parent's right who they confide in. Yeah. And one of those uh, aspects about this issue that, that a lot of parents don't know about is that it is almost zero the amount of uh people under the age of 18 who get uh type certain types of surgery associated with being trans and and, and i think listen i'm always one of those people that like if hormone blockers. If, we were just talking about this on my show today or hormone oh. blockers none of that and first of all you know what's really interesting you know straight people cisgendered people forget that they use blockers they use testosterone they use estrogen they use hormones and and actually puberty blockers blockers have been used by the medical profession for decades before they were any gymnasts. Know, issues around yeah gymnasts because, use them yeah. well and also just for kids who have medical issues who maybe started you know little girls that started their periods at eight or something or like they're they're legitimate medical reasons for for you hormone use for both adults and children at times for a very minority and we're talking about such a minority here a really yeah. small minority of children right um and there is no like this does not happen i mean no in intervention happens until months of therapy you know everybody's involved I mean, this is not like, you know, you decide when you're nine that you're going to be, you know, you're born a boy, but you're going to be a girl and all of a sudden they're performing surgery on you. This is what the right would want you to believe. This is not, this is an urban myth, just like this guys is also what I up think, as women to get into girls. Sorry to cut you off, Sherry. I, but yeah, this is also what I think um, conservative parents or even moderate parents, um, they, you know... They believe that, that, like, the worst parts of it because they're not 
educated. Like you can start with Daniel Smith's office and send a crew over there to like explain to them what the statistics are, show them the data, you know, just with a nonpartisan kind of vibe, just like, here you go. I think there will be, for the very first time ever, trickle-down might work, <laughs> where where it will be trickle-down information, where these people will finally understand, no, it's nothing like what you think it is. I, I, I guess I'm just, I have more faith, I think, that in, in, in um, c- citizens' ability to be educated on something. I know no one agrees with me on that, honestly. We, we're in yeah. a soundbite culture, you know? But, I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, I, I don't think Daniel Smith or Mo or any of these people or the some 300 bills that are on the books of the states, including one to take away trans children from their parents. So talking about not consulting. Um, what? Uh, all wow. of these bills are, are happening. It's, 19, yeah, it's the 1930s all over again. Um, and this is something that people don't know, but if there's some great documentaries on this, this issue that show that one of the first targeted groups in Berlin um, were trans vote because they were tended to be obvious and they carried papers then because it was very open oh, wow. um, back then and they had sex reassignment surgeries and everything. It was a second, you know, a, it was a center for that in, in all of Europe. Um, so, I mean, this is this is history. And, and, and honestly, I don't think Daniel Smith and Mo really care. This is a wedge issue for the ultra right. And that's how it's being used. How do we pick on a group that's so small, such a minority, so misunderstood, so, so little education about and make them the target? And, and then people will spread all sorts of urban myths and fear tactics. And then, you know, we'll, we'll gain some more traction this way. This is the point of this. And, you know, um, this is, again, um, this is political. It's not... I don't think it's they care about the science. I don't think they they would be swayed by scientific evidence. I think they just see it as a wedge issue that are going to get some people on side that weren't on side before. Yeah, wedge issues in politics are never going to go away. Um, let's bounce around a little bit. Yeah, do, do you have a little bit more time? Okay, I do. Let's. Okay, do. good. Um, because I have ADHD, um, this isn't called rapid fire, but it probably will end up like that. I'm just going to bounce around a little bit. Joe Biden. Should they replace him at the convention this summer and run a candidate that has more vigor and energy to run against Trump? You're you're glitching a little bit. Could you repeat that? Oh, okay. Sorry. Is this better? Uh, yeah. Now I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Joe Biden. I don't know. I never know. Our, so go ahead. Joe Joe Biden. Should they replace him at the convention? Uh. Uh, I think it's too late. Yeah. I think it's too late. The I last time it happened was, uh, the last time it happened was when Robert Kennedy um, was killed and they, uh, I think they ran Humphreys um, that year. But uh, yeah, Johnson resigned because he thought Kennedy would win. Kennedy ended up getting assassinated and then they put Humphreys in and they lost. I personally don't think he's um, capable of, of spending another four years in the White House. And and I don't, I'm not a Trump fan and I wouldn't vote for Trump. I would vote for this before i vote for trump but we might be getting this <laughs> running against trump right yeah i think uh the I, the center is falling out in politics everywhere uh, globally and i think biden has made some critical errors in that regard has uh, disregarded the left wing of his base um and the thing is those people will stay home and they won't yeah. vote. And that's that's the nightmare. So it really is devil in deep blue sea. And um, 
and and said uh, said that you know folk in the Democratic Party didn't see this earlier, didn't see it when Hillary ran, right? Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with Trudeau that we've got up here is that when Polyev talks about elites, um, well, yeah, those should be our words on the left, quite frankly. But talks about yeah. elites and and we not because they are. I mean, Trudeau, they're elites. Like, come on, they are. Um, and when he says have nots against have yachts, you know, we love that. We should be talking about that. He's talking mm -hmm. about it. Now he doesn't really mean it. I mean, he's funded by large corporations. So, uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, um, the it's it's you know, a like the left has to get their act together. We have to get our act together if we're going to take take on what's happening historically. There, there appears to be um, inside uh, the Ottawa bubble, inside the Liberal Caucus, especially this idea that this is one of those elections where people have regime fatigue. Um, the public in general has had enough of Trudeau, not his fans, but that's why you see someone like Polyev so high in the polls. And that um, the, the conventional wisdom, although I don't think there is any anymore, but this seems to be consistent. Where if you have a, a candidate that, that the party thinks might be viable, like a Christia Freeland or a Mark Carney or something like that, that they are gun shy about replacing Trudeau because they think the next election is already lost. Is that your read on it as well? Well, what I think is there's kind of a Trudeau cult that happened in the Liberal Party federally. And um, they really thought, I mean, he was an international celebrity. I mean, he looks sort of like Elvis to me. But anyway, like the guy's hot, right? You know? Apparently and it's Castro, not Elvis. Yeah. I would I would travel around, you know, at, at a certain point and it was kind of Trudeau mania, right? And yeah. somehow they think that that wouldn't go away. And it has. And it has a, a hugely effective global campaign against him, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so, and now they feel like they don't have any alternatives. And again, they've left it too late. So, I mean, I think that's what you've got going on there, um, kind of tunnel vision. So, um, and, and, and I think, you know, again, where's the NDP? We should have been not associating with them, not making you know, not great deals with them in my books. Um, we should have distinct been, been seen as distinct from them, not as their research and development wing. And um, then we would have had a chance because the center is dropping out. But we didn't. And so um, yeah. looks like we got work to do, my friend. Looks like we yeah. got work. <laughs> I, feel, I feel sorry for Singh. I feel sorry for Yagmeet Singh um, because he's just, you know, like there's so much promise there, there was so much promise there and now he's seen as somebody um who is taking kind of superficial shots at trudeau making a deal with one hand and giving him the finger with the other hand kind of thing and it's not working like it doesn't mix well do you think that they are like is the next election it for singh or do you think that he might overstay his welcome like many other leaders before him <laughs> um well we'll see we'll live to see that but um, but again, I, I you know it seems to me that in politics you've got to be bold and you've got to be stand on principle, and you don't have to agree. Um, we don't want a one-party state. You can have differences of opinion and difference, differences in ideology, but you got to have one. <laughs> you got to have something. People have to know who you are and why you're different from that guy, right? And 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 if you don't do that. Um, you may save a seat or two. And I think that's the great fear in the Liberal and NDP federal circles is that they're going to be decimated. And the problem is that we become what we fear and we bring about what we fear. So fear not, said uh, some guy that I preach about on Sundays. Um, don't be frightened. 
um, actually be bold and actually um, and actually you know show what I think should be your real colors and uh, and that's not what I see happening in politics up here. I that. see, and we'll I'll, I'll I'll end it with this. Um, we'll go back to Ontario, your stomping grounds, and um, uh, Miss Styles, uh, the leader of the NDP, just found herself, uh, according to the latest polls, and I don't put a lot of st- stock in polls, but whatever, is now in second place. Was the Bonnie Crombie leadership? Was that uh, her being um, voted in as leader? Is that a smart move by the Liberals or a gamble? Because I find her to be a little Ford light in her politics. I mean, she is a little Ford light in her politics. Um, I mean, this is a strength of the provincial liberal brand. And I think to your earlier point about how we vote separately from federal, I think people are getting really terrified of a Polyev federal Mm. government. So I think that's giving some wind in the liberal sails here in a provincial level. But they have, remember, she doesn't even have a seat. She doesn't even have a seat. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. Even, they don't even have party status. People forget this. Um, so um, I. I don't know. I'm. I'm a Mart fan um, and uh, supported her leadership. I. I think if we. Yeah. If we get our acts together, you know, it's still. We've still got some time. We still got some time. Yeah. Sherry DeNovo, always, always, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I always get good feedback. People tell me I'm more well behaved when you're here. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure, James. Love your show. You can come back anytime. Thanks very much. Take care. See you soon. Bye-bye. Sherry DeNovo. Oh, oh, I always feel like I'm learning something when Sherry's on the show. So um, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I have uh, uh, a good authority that um, I should be interviewing uh, Rabble Rouser and controversial whatever the hell he actually is. I'm going to try to make it a civil uh, interview with David Parker, but I'm curious to know... um, or to figure out why he seems to have so much power when he seems to have such bad ideas. Um, so, so we'll we'll figure that out. Casual Friday is on today. As you can see, I'm back in my stomping grounds. Uh, my cat is on the desk. I really hate it when he does that. Um, but thanks, everybody, for joining. And uh, we'll see you next time on Black Ball. Black and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. 
Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.